0: Uh, today, we are going to be looking at the Pentecostal latter rain and healing revival movements in the U.S. Uh, that were very much at the forefront of things in the American church uh, in the 1940s and 1950s. While Pentecostals shared many basic assumptions about Christianity. With conservative Protestants, the earliest Pentecostals were rejected by fundamentalist Christians who adhered to cessationism. And again, remember, cessationism is the idea that the, you know what we see depicted in the book of Acts where Christians uh, are exercising spiritual gifts, being filled with the Holy Spirit, Although the Holy Spirit is still around, a cessationist will say, he doesn't work the same way he did back then, and we don't do the kinds of things that we see going on in the Book of Acts. Now, in 1928, the World Christian Fundamentals Association labeled Pentecostalism fanatical and unscriptural. By the early 1940s, this rejection of Pentecostals was giving way to a new cooperation between them and leaders of the new evangelicalism. And American Pentecostals were involved in the founding of the 1942 National Association of Evangelicals. So very slowly, Pentecostals are beginning to make their way more into mainstream uh, Protestant Christian circles. Pentecostal denominations also began to interact with each other, both on national levels and international levels, through the Pentecostal World Fellowship, which was founded in 1947. Although Pentecostals began to find acceptance among evangelicals in the 40s, the previous decade of the 30s was widely viewed as a time of spiritual dryness. Think back to the 1930s. What was going on in the United States? The Great Depression. Depression. And then we kind of move from that into World War II. Um, And really, by the latter part of the 1940s, American life is just beginning to get back kind of to normal, if you want to call it that healings and other miraculous phenomena were perceived as being less prevalent in the 30s than in earlier decades of the Pentecostal movement. It was in this environment that the latter rain movement, the most important controversy to affect Pentecostalism since World War II, began in North America and spread around the world in the late 1940s and again remember most of our focus is going to be on what's going on in the united states but keep in mind pentecostalism is spreading all over the world it is uh, growing rapidly throughout central and south america it is spreading to europe asia and africa pretty much everywhere except greenland and antarctica because those places are too cold to live (laughs) Not too many people in those places. Ladder <laughs> ice, yeah. Ladder-reigned leaders taught the restoration of the five-fold ministry led by uh, the apostles. Again, going back to the book of Acts, what do, how do we see the apostles functioning? The idea that the five-fold apostolic ministry could be restored to the church was very controversial. And these latter-reign apostles were believed capable of imparting spiritual gifts through the laying on of hands, just like the apostles in the New Testament. Latter-reign Pentecostals stress the imminence of the premillennial return of Jesus Christ preceded by an outpouring of God's Spirit, which was expected in accordance with the former reign and the latter reign of Joel 2.28. This was interpreted as a dual prophecy of the day of Pentecost, as described in Acts 2. So what we see in Acts 2 is the former reign, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we see in the 20th century, that immediately precedes the coming of the Lord, so they believed. This is what's going on, you know, in those times. This is the latter reign. There was an emphasis on the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues and spiritual gifts which were to be received by the laying on of hands. This was in contrast to the old Pentecostal practice of tarrying for the Holy Spirit that had become widespread during the years prior to the latter rain movement. And probably most of the people in this audience uh, have, I don't know if you've ever met an old-line Pentecostal, but if you did, they would talk about tarrying, waiting for the Holy Spirit, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and, and descend upon us. Um, so this, this idea that we can seek the Holy Spirit and he's going to come, and we kind of don't have to wait however long you, know, you think waiting might take that it, this is going to be much more immediate and dramatic. And church government by the Ephesians 4 ministries. You go back to Ephesians 4 and you read about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. This was endorsed by the latter reign preachers. A new worship style was introduced. Latter reign Pentecostals practiced the song of the Lord. This is corporate singing in the Spirit in tongues where everybody's singing their own unique song to the Lord. Um, and I've been in meetings, I've been in lots of meetings where this went on. And you might think this would probably sound awful, but actually it doesn't. Because pretty much, once once it really gets going, everybody pretty much ends up singing in the key of C. <laughs> so, you know, and it's it's not, you know, every once in a while you get somebody who's singing off key, but, you know, that that's that can happen anywhere, Um, but it's actually much more melodious and harmonious than you might think. Many groups looked to 1 Corinthians 12 as a blueprint for conducting church worship services, but Pentecostal denominations were critical of this and condemned many practices of the latter rain movement as unscriptural. Keep in mind that a lot of old line Pentecostals had formerly been involved in Baptist, Methodist, and other holiness churches. And they pretty much kept their idea of church as it had been in those denominations. They had been kicked out of those denominations because they were speaking in tongues. That was really the only new innovative thing they were doing. Their idea of how church should be set up and run was pretty much similar to how Baptist and Methodist and other uh, uh, evangelical churches were run. So this idea of, you know, the fivefold ministries that we see in Ephesians, this was radical. Now, the, a lot of the latter reign people were very sectarian. In other words, they were uh, they were very much, you know, we've got our own little group and we're going to do everything differently than everybody else. And there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of um, cooperation in that sense, especially when it came to how they organized churches and uh, missionary and evangelical societies. So many independent churches were birthed out of this revival. So in other words, you have a latter reign apostle who goes out and is, you know, preaching everywhere, traveling around the country, and after a while, he gathers to himself or she in some cases, gathers to him or herself a group of followers, and then they end up starting their own church. Now, at the same time, within Pentecostalism, there was a healing revival going on Led by healing evangelists William Branham, Oral Roberts, Gordon Lindsay, and T.L. Osborne, and many, many others, I've just hit a few, Uh, many non-Pentecostals were baptized in the Holy Spirit through these ministries. And the latter reign in the healing revival movements influenced many leaders of the charismatic movement that would come later in the 60s and 70s. Unfortunately, but perhaps not surprisingly, some leaders in both the latter reign and healing revival movements had checkered pasts, problematic theology, and unorthodox practices and beliefs that bordered on, frankly, cultishness. Okay, we're gonna take a few minutes to look at William Branham born April 6, 1909, died December 24, 1965. He was an American minister and faith healer, one of the first who initiated the post-World War II healing revival. He claimed to be a prophet with the anointing of Elijah, who had come to prelude Christ's second coming. And some of his followers have since been labeled a doomsday cult, because this group was very much focused on Jesus is coming any day. The end of the world is at hand. Get ready, because the Lord is coming back. It's going to be very, very soon. Branham claimed that his parents told him that a light hovered over him in his cradle when he was a baby. He claims to have had a revelation from God at the age of three, And after a nearly fatal accident, he claimed to have heard a voice, another revelation from God, and at that point, he began to seek God. He got involved in the Pentecostal movement and eventually was ordained as an independent Baptist minister. Now, wait a minute. How does that go together? I don't know. That's where he got his start, however. Um, Although he endorsed the teachings of oneness Pentecostalism, And if you remember from a previous talk, I I spent some time looking at oneness Pentecostalism, and that basically is the idea that the Trinity does not exist. Jesus Christ is God. We don't have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as three separate persons within the Godhead. Uh, Jesus Christ is God, and he can manifest himself in different ways And a oneness Pentecostal would say, you know, what you think of as the Holy Spirit, well, that's just one manifestation or mode of Jesus Christ, uh, and so forth. Uh, Branham also claimed to have regular visions and revelations. Branham's followers claimed that hundreds of people had been healed by his ministry. Others believed it was all a hoax, and news reports circulated That many people who claim to have been healed died soon after their experience and for some Branham's methods were questionable okay now some of what I I am going to say about him may appear to be critical it is critical somewhat Um, we have to remember this man did not have any real education to speak of. He had, grow, he had come from poverty, he had very little formal schooling, he had no theological training, and he was not plugged in, so to speak, or connected with a solid group of Christians, a church or a denomination, that would have provided him the theological and practical support uh, that within which he could have structured his ministry and had a much more healthy approach to this ministry. Um, and I think this highlights how, how necessary it is for someone with an itinerant ministry, uh, for example, like Billy Graham, to have an organization that is supporting him, undergirding him, and also can serve as sort of checks and balances if things get out of balance. So Branham explained to his audiences that an angel had appointed his ministry and had given him two signs that would prove his commission. The first sign was a vibration in his hand when he touched a sick person's hand, which communicated to him the nature of the illness, but did not guarantee healing. The second sign was a word or a gift of knowledge, but that did not appear in his campaigns until 1948, and was used to amaze tens of thousands at his meetings. And according to many, Branham could, um, you know, tell people where they were born, the names of their parents, all kinds of facts about them that, you know, this was a person he had just literally met a few seconds before, that he. Uh, The Holy Spirit showed him many things about the person that uh, could not otherwise be known. Now, as the revival progressed, his contemporaries began to copy his practices. According to F.F. Bosworth, another faith-healing evangelist, this word-of-knowledge gift allowed Branham to see and enable him to tell the many events of people's lives. And Branham's use of a word of knowledge separated him from his contemporaries in the early days of the revival. Branham's ministry was both popular and controversial through the 40s and 50s. But by the 1960s, the faith healing and revival scene was becoming crowded. Branham shifted to doing more Bible teaching, But his unorthodox beliefs drew criticism as much as his traveling ministry had. Branham espoused modalism, again this idea that is uh, part of oneness Pentecostalism, rejecting the trinity. Um, He espoused the serpent seed doctrine, and I'm not going to really get into what that is. Annihilationism, this is the idea that nobody goes to hell, that the wicked are just destroyed after death. The word of faith, which we'll be talking more about next time, the idea that the Zodiac and the Egyptian pyramids are equal to written scripture in terms of what they reveal and that the world would end in 1977. Praise God, that did not happen. (laughs) At the... uh, Where am I? There we go. Okay, uh, now we're going to talk about James Gordon Lindsay. Uh, Usually uh, he went by Gordon Lindsay. Um, Some of you, I don't know, some of you may have heard of him. He was a revivalist preacher, author, and founder of Christ for the Nations Institute. And I knew some people that were involved with Christ for the Nations. Born in Zion, Illinois, Lindsay's parents were disciples of John Alexander Dowie. Uh, This is a man who lived in the 19th century, early 20th century. He was really, many people saw him as the father of healing revivalism in America. He really kind of got the movement going. After the family moved to Portland, Oregon, Gordon was influenced by evangelist John G. Lake and converted to Pentecostalism by Charles Fox Parham remember Parham was the early pioneering Pentecostal who along with William Seymour really got things going in the early 20th century at the age of 18 Lindsay began his ministry as a traveling evangelist conducting meetings in assemblies of God churches and British Israelite churches and among other Pentecostal groups If you don't know what British Israelitism is, you can look that up on the internet. I'm not gonna take the time to go through that. Uh, By 1940, he was organizing large convention meetings, including the 1940 Anglo-Saxon World Federation meetings in Vancouver. In 1947, he began, began serving as campaign manager and publicist for William Branham. Although not as gifted an evangelist as the others, his orderly mind, keen business sense, sharp literary skills, and an ecumenical spirit work together to maintain the movement's integrity, coordination, and growth. In order to promote Branham's ministry, Lindsay started the Voice of Healing magazine in Shreveport, Louisiana in April of 1948. Shreveport was home of Branham's prior manager, Jack Moore, who pastored a church in the city. When Branham took leave from the ministry later in 1948, Lindsay began promoting other healing evangelists such as Jack Coe, Oral Roberts, and A.A. A. Allen. The Voice of Healing group sponsored the first convention of healing evangelists in Dallas, Texas, during 1949 and began to function as a loose fellowship of ministers under the voice of healing banner Um, and here you can see um, the header kind of got cut off but on the left uh, it says voice of it's actually an image from one of their uh, magazines in the early 50s and on the right you can see william branham's ministry william branham is in the uh, on the bottom in the center uh, gordon lindsay is in the top right and Ern baxter who was branham's uh, bible teacher is uh, seated to the left of branham and um, earn, we will be talking more about earn baxter uh, he was a very good Bible teacher, one of my favorites, by the way. So I am going to devote, he's very good. Um, and he was involved with the ministry for a period of time, but at, at a certain point he left uh, the Branham group. But this was the voice of healing. Um, I'm not sure who else is pictured there, uh, but some other men involved with the voice of healing in the early 50s. T.L. Osborne and F.F. Bosworth were other Pentecostal healing evangelists who became part of the group under the Voice of Healing banner. Now, Lindsey's work began to move in the direction of missions. He began sponsoring missions programs in several foreign countries and started a radio ministry. During 1956, he conducted a Winning the Nation's Crusade, sending teams of ministers all around the world The Voice of Healing magazine changed names briefly to Worldwide Revival in 1958 before reverting to Voice of Healing later the same year. Lindsay changed the magazine's name to Christ for the Nations in 1971. During 1956, he he conducted a Winning the Nations crusade and, uh, again, You know, similar to what Billy Graham, you know, a lot of people are looking at what Billy Graham is doing. Certainly the Pentecostals were saying, we can do what Billy Graham does. We can train evangelists and send them all over the world. And um, many of these preachers in the healing revival and the latter rain group were very active in Canada and in Great Britain and traveled to many other nations as well. Christ for the Nations continued after Lindsay's death, run by his family, and grew to have a missions outreach, church programs, and a publishing group. And Lindsay himself was a prolific author, publishing over 250 volumes of historical and doctrinal books on the healing revival movement and other topics. Okay, now we're going to take a look at Oral Roberts. Born January 24th, 1918, to December 15th, 2009, not that long ago. Like Billy Graham, I mean, we're going to see a lot of comparisons here. Uh, Like Billy Graham, he lived a very long life and had a very um, well-known ministry, but he was a Pentecostal, and he was very much a proponent of laying hands on people to be healed. Initially part of Pentecostal healing evangelism, later he became known as a charismatic Christian televangelist who was one of the first to teach the prosperity gospel, which we will get into in a later talk. He was ordained in both the Pentecostal Holiness and United Methodist Churches, and at the height of his career, he was one of the most well-recognized preachers in the U.S., Born into poverty in Oklahoma, Roberts was the fifth and youngest child of the Reverend Ellis Melvin Roberts. His father lived from 1881 to 1967. After finishing high school, Roberts studied for two years each at Oklahoma Baptist University and Phillips University, but did not finish a degree. So unlike some of the other healing evangelists, he had more formal education. Roberts then started a traveling, healing evangelism ministry as well as pastoring a local church. Until 1947, Roberts struggled as a part-time preacher in Oklahoma, but when he was 29, Roberts said he picked up his Bible and it fell open at the third epistle of John where he read verse 2, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. Sorry, I left off the uh, translation, the initials for the translation. This is from the King James Version. And by the way, we are going to talk about, at some point, I'm not sure when I'm going to get to it, uh, we are going to talk about the King James Version only, I guess you could call it issue or controversy, among many Pentecostals and Evangelicals. We'll get to that. I'm not sure when, but we will talk about it. The next day, uh, Robert said he bought a Buick and God appeared, directing him to heal the sick. (laughs) So he's he's getting ready to set out on the road. He resigned his pastoral ministry with the Pentecostal Holiness Church to found the Oral Roberts Evangelistic Association. He conducted evangelistic and faith healing campaigns across the U.S. and around the world claiming that he could raise the dead. In November of 1947, he started Healing Waters, a monthly magazine that he used to promote his ministry. At the Crusades and campaigns, thousands of sick people waited in line to stand before Oral Roberts so he could pray for them. He appeared as a guest speaker for hundreds of national and international meetings and conventions. Through the years, he conducted more than 300 crusades on six continents and personally laid hands in prayer on more than two million people. So I think you can see the comparison here with Billy Graham. He also ran direct mail campaigns of seed faith, which appealed to poor Americans, often from ethnic minorities. The seed faith doctrine is the teaching that the things received by faith start with the seed the name seed faith comes from matthew 17:20. again i'm quoting from the uh, uh, king james version if you have faith as a mustard seed you will say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you oral roberts originally called this concept the blessing pact and it later became known as seed faith Oftentimes, the idea of seed faith became conflated with financial giving, as in by giving a little, you will reap a little, but if you give much, you will reap much. Seed faith operates on the principle of you reap what you sow, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, but it's not as automatic as, let's say, the law of gravity. The problem arises when people give financially to a ministry, a church, or some other Christian work, or in other ways, expecting to receive something back in proportion to what was given or expecting something greater. It is certainly possible to sow generously to a Christian work, but you don't personally gain anything from it in terms of material you know, you may be blessed by seeing the, the work grow and thrive and reach others, but you may not receive any kind of material blessing as a result. And in other cases, you may give uh, not as generously, but the blessings you receive may be much greater than what you gave. You know, you cannot really equate spiritual blessings with money. You can't put a dollar value on those things. However, the problem is, you know, if you're poor and struggling to pay your bills, it may become tempting to to begin to think, well, if I just give a little bit, God will bless me. Maybe he'll bless me more, uh, you know, financially than what I ended up giving to the ministry. Or maybe not. The seed Faith Doctrine was part of a larger concept that Oral Roberts taught. See, faith was one aspect of the abundant life teaching that many Pentecostal and Charismatic teachers continue to preach today. The term abundant life comes from John 10.10. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. More abundantly, of course, means to have a superabundance of something. Abundant life refers to life in its abounding fullness of joy and strength, for spirit, soul, and body. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna live in a big house, wear expensive designer clothes, and drive a pink Cadillac. (laughs) Unless you work for Mary Kay. (laughs) Abundant life implies a contrast to feelings of lack, emptiness, and dissatisfaction, And such feelings may motivate a person to seek for the meaning of life and a change in their life. The Christian life is believed to be an abundant life in many respects. And many people who respond to the gospel and give their lives to Christ expect to receive an abundant life. But what does that look like? If they do not receive what they believe to be an abundant life, After becoming a Christian, they may become disillusioned and disbelieving. Abundant life teachings often do not emphasize other basic and necessary doctrines of the Christian life, such as true repentance from sin, doctrines uh, such as true submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ, deliverance from demonic bondage, developing a prayer and devotional life, and becoming a serving and submitted member of a healthy local church. And too often, the abundant life is interpreted to look a lot like the affluent, materialistic American lifestyle of the 20th and 21st centuries. So when a gospel preacher talks about the abundant life, what does he mean by that? What do you think of when you think of the abundant life? Those are good things to, to think about and question. Little to no emphasis is placed on the path of service, suffering, and hardship that we see in the Gospels. What if your abundant lo- life might look like Paul's? He had an abundance of suffering and hardship. He experienced a great deal of life in Christ, right? You know, He was always rejoicing in the, mid- in, in the middle of these hardships and trials. Maybe that's the abundant life God has for you. Unfortunately, that doesn't sell as well. (laughs) (laughs) Oral Roberts' teachings on the abundant life were picked up by many charismatic preachers and became part of the prosperity gospel message that became popular in the 1980s and beyond. In 1963, he founded Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, stating that he was obeying a command from God. The university was chartered during 1963 and received its first students in 65. Students were required to sign an honor code pledging not to drink, smoke, or engage in premarital sexual activities. The prayer tower opened in 1967 is located at the center of the campus. Roberts was a pioneer televangelist and attracted a vast viewership. He began broadcasting by radio in 1947 and then broadcast his revivals by TV starting in 1954. His television ministry continued with the Abundant Life program reaching 80% of the United States by 1957 and he ran quarterly primetime TV specials from 1969 through 1980. In 68, Roberts left the Pentecostal Holiness Church from, and from 68 through 87, he was a member of the United Methodist Church, which maybe not a lot of people realize he did. In 1996, he founded Golden Eagle Broadcasting. By the 1970s and 80s, many considered Oral Roberts to be one of America's foremost evangelists, second only to Billy Graham. In 77, Roberts said he had a vision that encouraged him to build the City of Faith Medical and Research Center in Oklahoma, which opened in 1981. And at the time that it uh, was in existence, it was uh, among the largest health facilities of its kind in the world, and was intended to merge prayer and medicine in the healing process. The City of Faith operated for eight years before closing in late 89. Roberts fundraising was controversial. In January of 87, during a fundraising drive, Roberts announced to a television audience that unless he raised 8 million by that March, God would call him home. What does that mean? <laughs> it's a threat. <laughs> yeah. However, the year before on Easter, he had told a gathering at the Dallas Convention Center that God had instructed him to raise the money by the end of the year, or he would die. <laughs> yeah, pretty, uh, pretty, um Yeah. Regardless of this new March deadline and the fact that he was still 4.5 million short of his goal, some were fearful that he was referring to suicide, given the impassioned pleas and tears that accompanied his statement. So obviously, this is fairly manipulative. uh it's in the latter part of the 80s it until 2000. 2009 yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah well <laughs> let's let's see what happens here so late uh in march of 87 while Rab- roberts was fasting and praying in the prayer tower um, on the campus of earl roberts university florida dog track owner jerry collins donated 1.3 million highly worried from what he perceived a dog track owner. <laughs> <laughs> highly worried from what he perceived as roberts threatening to starve himself collins said i did it in order to save the guy from going to heaven in a hurry <laughs> Regardless of the ministry's finances, Roberts maintained his love of finery. Mm-hmm. So again, this reinforces you know the what's become stereotypical of many Pentecostal preachers is they love to dress in expensive fancy clothes and live kind of a highfalutin type lifestyle. According to the staff, regardless of all the you know, all the chaos uh, of the finances of the ministry, he continued to wear his Italian silk suits, diamond rings, and gold bracelets airbrushed out on publicity pictures. Harry McNevin, an uh, Oral Roberts University board member, said that in 1988, the Board of Regents rubber-stamped the use of millions in endowment money to buy a Beverly Hills property so that Oral Roberts could have a West Coast office and house. In addition, he said a country club membership was purchased for the Roberts family. The lavish expenses led to McNevin's resignation from the board. In 88, Oral Roberts and his son Richard were sued for $15 million in federal court by patients at City of Faith Medical Center who claimed the two were frauds who did not visit or heal patients in the hospital so um, you know again, a mixed picture we have here there are many people who say I you know was prayed for by Oral Roberts, I was sick and now and then I was not sick, I was healed um, you know there this is what's so difficult to pin down, and the, the fact is that There were many times where the Holy Spirit was impacting uh, the meetings and evangelistic crusades that these people were doing. Many people were touched by the Holy Spirit. Many people were healed. Um, But other things went on that were not good, clearly. There we go. Finally, we're gonna talk about Catherine Coleman. Another healing revival preacher was Catherine Coleman. And again, this, this is a person who is very much on her own and this led to lots of problems. She was born on May 9, 1907 in Concordia, Missouri to a German couple who had emigrated to the US. She became a Christian at the age of 14 at an evangelistic meeting held in a small Methodist church. When she was 16, she graduated from high school, which only went to 10th grade in their town. So very little formal education, she never went to college. She joined her older sister Myrtle and her husband Everett B. Parrott, a traveling evangelist along with a pianist named Helen Gulliford. Catherine often gave her testimony at the meetings conducted by the parents. She stayed with her sister, brother-in-law and Gulliford for five years, traveling throughout Idaho. In 1928, Everett missed a meeting held at a local church and Myrtle and Catherine preached to cover for him. The pastor of the church encouraged Catherine to step out on her own and Helen agreed to join her. The team, just two women traveling through Idaho, Utah, and Colorado for the next five years. No accountability, no support, uh, just basically preaching and you know, receiving whatever they could collect from the people that they preached to. In 1933, they moved into Pueblo, Colorado, and they set up in an abandoned Montgomery Ward warehouse and stayed there for six months. After Pueblo, they moved to Denver, where they established the ministry in another old warehouse. In 1935, Coleman set up the Denver Revival Tabernacle in a former truck garage, and the ministry grew to 2,000 regular attenders. You know, it was a lot easier conducting this ministry in a large city as opposed to traveling through small mountain towns uh, in states like Idaho, uh, Colorado, and Utah. That year, Coleman met Burroughs Waltrip, a charismatic traveling evangelist who was also married with two children who soon left his family and married Coleman. This marriage proved disastrous for Coleman. She soon came to regret having married Waltrip. The next few years were very hard for the couple. They embarked on the road as traveling evangelists primarily staying in the Midwest. Who does she begin to remind you of? Amy Semple McPherson, maybe? It'll, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's, you know, wearing the same type of clothes, conducting the same type of ministry. Um, you know, uh, again, no support, no accountability, no organization that is going to provide her with guidance and oversight. Um, And so the couple were not accepted in many places because, of course, people heard about, you know, their history, how they'd they'd come together. Um, Now, initially, Waltrip was billed as the primary evangelist. But then occasionally, Mrs. Waltrip got mentioned and she preached on some occasions. But by the early 1940s, Catherine Coleman Waltrip was given equal billing. By the mid-1940s, Catherine was using only Catherine Coleman in meetings where she was the primary speaker. She divorced Waltrip in 1947. She she finally came to the point where she realized, I was truly kind of hoodwinked by this guy. I never should have married him. And she never remarried. In 1948, Coleman held a series of meetings at Carnegie, Carnegie Hall in Pittsburgh. She eventually moved to Pittsburgh in 1950, where she continued to hold meetings until 1971. So for the latter part of her ministry, she was based in Pittsburgh. She reached out to bring the charismatic message to many denominational churches, including the Catholic Church. The 1950s and 70s were her best known years. Her style was flamboyant again like McPherson. She would hold her famous miracle services and the auditorium was filled every time. Radio and television shows increased her reach. She was ordained in 1968 by the Evangelical Church Alliance. Hundreds of people gave testimonies of being healed in her meetings even while listening to her on the radio or television. People she prayed for would often be hit with the power of God and be slain in the spirit. Or in other words, just kind of, some people use the term falling out. Uh, Unfortunately, she died on February 20th, 1976 in Tulsa following open heart surgery. It turned out later that she had actually had uh, a chronic heart condition and had never gotten medical treatment for it. Uh, when she finally did get medical treatment, she didn't survive it. Um, and <clears throat> Coleman has influenced, uh, you know, people, who, people like Benny Hinn, who currently have uh, preaching and healing ministries on TV and other, uh, through other media. So you, some of you may have heard of Benny Hinn. Um, so Catherine Coleman is very well known still today in some circles. Um, this concludes what I have to present on the latter rain and healing revival movement. Um, I've got some uh, sources there. Um, you can find uh, you know, tons of information on the internet. Uh, an excellent book is The Cambridge Companion to Pentecostalism. Uh, there are newspaper articles and other um, resources. Again, easy to find this um, on the internet. <clears throat> Um, Does anyone have any questions or comments?